Welcome to the Playbook for Results, getting a grip on growing your business podcast. If you're looking for coaching and content proven to get you and your team to the top of their game, you've come to the right place. Grab your team or huddle with them after the podcast and get ready for your host and his invited guests to get you out of your comfort zone and into the growth zone. And now, here is your host, Edward Preston, VP of Revenue Creation, and Cesar Cavadoy, CEO of Playbook for Results. All right, get ready to be informed and transformed by your virtual coaching and value creation specialists as they set the stage for you to perform at the top of your game. Greetings to all in the land of milk and money. My name is Edward Preston, a.k.a. EP. Now is the time to tune out all the distractions and tune in to some stimulating ideas, tools, and tips that we will put on the table for you, both for sales leaders and sales professionals that are looking to get to the top of their game. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me on this journey that we call Getting a Grip on Growing Your Business. Well, let me introduce to you the man riding shotgun with me today, Mr. Caesar Cavadoy. Caesar, good day, sir. Hey, good day to you. Glad to be back here. Yeah, another great episode. Uh, get ready to roll out this one entitled Salesperson versus Sales Professional. Allow me to set the table for today's episode. You say tomato, I say tomato, potato, potato. Before I go too much further and start <laughs> singing the song, Salesperson versus Sales Professional. Caesar. Are these one and the same, or is there a significant difference that we can share with the folks today? So I think at first glance, most people would say, what is the difference? Is it just verbiage that you're using to distinguish between one person versus another? They're, they've both got sales in the title. So what really is the difference? And I look at it as the difference between a professional athlete versus an amateur athlete. doesn't mean that an amateur athlete couldn't at some point do this professionally. But one of the things that we've done over the last 12 years that we've been in front of tens of thousands of salespeople is to let them know that there is a very definitive line when you look across history between salespeople versus sales professionals. One stat that I generally point to is from the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics that says one out of every 10 people in this country, in the U.S., is employed in a sales-related role. That's 10% of our workforce is in a sales-related role. Now, if you look at the average that a person in a sales-related role makes, it's generally, according to stats and facts, about 30% below what the median income is in this country, which is really remarkable because sales is supposed to be one of the highest paid professions in the world. And yet one out of every 10, 10% of our population is in a role that they're not being very successful at. Then you look at sales professionals and those guys that are working to get to the top of the game, they are in the top 1%, 2% of earners globally. And so there's gotta be a distinct difference just by earnings alone. But we're gonna discuss what's the distinct differences in terms of their attributes and how they approach sales as a profession. Yeah, I mean, sales is such a broad term, right? I'm a sales rep, I'm an account executive, I am a customer success agent. I pick up the phone when the phone rings and I take a phone email, of, you know, credit card. I'm a salesperson. Um, so obviously, you know, definitely distinguishing the difference between, you know, that statistic that you just gave and somebody that wants to get to the top of their game and try to achieve a professional status. So let's talk about, you know, a sales professional that is trying to build a case to incorporate value. Uh, so when you're actually on the phone or you're out face to face with a customer, what is like, what does it take to actually try to build the value? What's like one of the key components 
that you're trying to achieve that makes that sales professional stand out from the rest of the crowd that is still kind of in the salesperson status? Sure. So one of the things that you see sales professionals do that salespeople do not is in that value creation process. And the most incredible thing is that they do this generally instinctively and intuitively. When they come through a course like ours, getting a grip on selling the real ABCs, they start to actually understand what they do at conscious competency and they do a lot more of it. And that's where sales really starts to grow for companies that bring us in. But what's really cool, you know, let me, let me take a step back. Well, first to answer your question, the value that they create is bringing something tangible to the table for the customers that they're working with or the prospects that they're pursuing. That's number one. And their focus, if you're a sales professional, like a salesperson is what's on their customer shelf, not what's on their shelf. A salesperson talks about what's on their shelf, a sales professional focuses in on what's on the customer shelf. And if I can just illustrate this quickly in a, in a, in a story that happened a few years ago. A few years ago, I love that. It's not about me. It's about you. 100%. Right? 100%. Yeah, okay. and, and they do that instinctively and intuitively. And there's attributes that they come to the table with that then you get to develop as a sales coach or a sales leader. But a few years ago, during summer break, my eldest daughter and her friends decided to have a bake sale. Now, mind you, they decided to start this business as a reaction to a problem that they were having. Summertime. They had no funds for summer fun. So with less than 12 hours from this idea to the point where they're going to actually implement, they went to sleep and then woke up the next morning in the mad scramble to launch this enterprise. What I understand, right, right, start, yeah, start exactly, phase. right. Yeah. yeah, this is a terrible startup story. But <laughs> what I do understand is that they 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 all committed to making some product for this enterprise, and then all four of them apparently had decided that they would rummage to their parents' home for chairs, tables, and everything else that they needed for this you know pop up bakery that they were going to illegally set up at the local park down the street from our house. So. Off they went after they'd gathered all their supplies and rummaged through our cupboards, etc. And it just so happened that I was in town that week taking a much needed respite from the 70 plus flights a year that I was doing at that time. And I planned on spending the day with my youngest daughter. Well, as we're driving out of our neighborhood, I decided that we're going to stop off to see how sister's doing. Now, remember, there were four of them. And just as I had imagined, because I knew them well, based on each of her friends' personalities, they had instinctively and intuitively fallen into very specific roles. There was social media friend who was busy texting on her phone and couldn't be concerned with anything else happening around her. There was painfully shy friend who was looking down, hoping that no one would ask her anything. There was Miss Overachiever who was busy calling people over to the bake sale table. And then there was my daughter who was the creative friend. She was busy merchandising. So we pull up and we're checking out their baked goods. And most people that know me, like they know I'm not a baked goods guy, but, and, and, and my youngest is also very particular about her baked goods. She has one particular thing she likes. And if it's not there, she's not going to have it. Anyway, we thought, look, it's going to be a good idea just to support sister. So we went there and after some back and forth negotiation, we pulled away with this flat top, dense as a rock, size of a tennis ball muffin. They were trying to sell this thing for a buck and I paid 35 cents for it. Listen, I already paid for the ingredients to that cupcake, so I wasn't gonna pay for that again, but I'd happily pay for the labor, which I felt was worth 35 cents. Now, as we're driving away, I asked my youngest daughter, what do you think the issue is? Because they didn't seem like they were selling a lot. So I asked her, I said, what do you think the issue was? Now, one of the reasons that I asked her is to see what a 10 year old would say about why she thought her sisters and her friends we're doing such a poor job at selling. And she looked at me, she goes, you're not quite honestly, I don't know. So I said, so well, let me see if I can explain this to you. I said, Sydney, I want you to get me to open my hand. So she took her little hand 
and attempted to open my hand. Now, this isn't a normal 10-year-old kid. At this point, she was one belt away from her black belt. So pound for pound, she was a pretty strong kid. Yeah. You know, but I had my kung fu grip and I had resolved in my mind to not let her open my hand. Now, after a few seconds, I said, Sydney, what you're doing is what salespeople do. They're trying to force the transaction. And I said to her again, get me. And this time I added an additional word. I said, get me or convince me to open my hand. So she thought about it. And after a few seconds, she looks at me kind of weird and we're at a stop sign. So that's critical to remember, but we're starting to roll through the stop sign and she grabs the door handle and acts as she's going to open the door and jump out of the car. And she actually starts to pull on the door handle. So what do I do? I, I grab her hand, my hand opens up, right? And I said, uh-huh, clever, you know, clever young Padawan, right? Very clever. Right? But I said, Sydney, that's also a salesperson. You manipulated me into doing what you wanted. I said, I want you to convince me to open my hand. So she thought about it for a bit and then said, you know, dad, I'd really like to hold your hand. You and I hold hands a lot, but there is going to come a time where we won't. So let's hold hands. Now, EP, you know me. I'm not the warm and fuzzy guy, but at yeah. that moment, right? I, mean, no, I, I wasn't every just. Guy that's got a, yeah, every, do, every guy that's got a daughter out there right now is going, oh, yeah. That's, right. That's a good moment right there. I mean, so I wasn't just. Yeah, I wasn't just okay. moved to be warm and fuzzy guy, but I was a proud dad who also happens to be a, a sales coach that was just super proud because she instinctively and intuitively, you know, she perfectly demonstrated the difference to me between a sales professional and a salesperson. Right. And so it's about. Caesar, yeah. The keys there, the keys there, the key takeaways are manipulation. And, and and here's another thing that I want to put in front of you. And this would really be for like any business leaders, any sales leaders that are listening to this pod, which is assumptions. I mean, one of the other problems of that story you just told of the four people that set up shop and you know, are going to go do the bake sale, they all assumed that it's just going to happen. Like they all assume that, well, I just assume that you're going to be able to sell and you're going to be able to sell and you're going to be able to sell. Think of a sales leader that's looking at his or her team right now. They've yep. got 10 people, 25 people, 250 people right now. And think of, they're thinking, well, the last 10 people that I've hired, you have, a, you have your own personal criteria as to what you're looking for, but you've made assumptions based off of where they've worked, based off of what somebody told you, based off of, well, I just assumed since they were able to get the, the, uh, you know, the, the Walmart deal that they can do that again over here and duplicate that. There's a lot of assumptions. And the reality is some of these people that look like they're sales professionals are still really only salespeople that are still, you know, in that, in that phase of trying to get to the top of their game. So just, just kind of want to. For sure. That. Look, you, you, you think about those four folks that were at the bake sale table, you've got a bunch of weeds. How many of them are actually able to produce fruit when it comes to selling, when it comes to connecting a solution to someone that wants to purchase that solution? And there's a specific set of criteria or what we call attributes across four different areas that we measure for companies. And we've done this for 12 years now, and it's part of our triage process that we do up front. Not because we're mean and we want to see people have their futures freed to go do something else that they have a higher level of aptitude four, it's because we look at just the complexity involved and the efforts involved and all the resources that are marshaled to be able to create a customer that's going to have a high lifetime value. And we don't want to put any additional downward pressure on pricing because you've got people within your revenue producing model that are just not suited to help you produce revenue. And so these attributes, there are some specific things that you've got to bring to the table that if you don't have, I don't care how great of an attitude you have, you, you got to look at, you might have a passion for doing something, but you have to have a proficiency for it too. And there's there's got to be an ability to turn that into some some level of profitability. And if you can't okay, so do that, that, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk. There's a lot of people listening right now. 
now that are, you know, we now understand the difference between a salesperson and a, a sales professional. Let's take it up another notch though. A lot of people right now, if I asked any one of one of 10 people that you shared that statistic with earlier, if I just walk into any organization and there's an inside sales team, so that's nice because I can see them all right then and there if, if, we, if we were actually out of quarantine. So if I just dropped into any online conference and saw an inside team and asked this question, do you feel that you are at an exceptional pace to your plan and getting to your plan and above, or is everything right now around you in terms of performance uh, that can be, you know, your customers calling you, leads coming in, you producing pipeline is just mediocre. How do you get from mediocre? There's going to be people in that room that will be honest. Those will be the honest ones. <laughs> Those that are telling me that they're mediocre. Those are the ones that say, Hey, it could be better. How do you get from being a mediocre sales professional to that exceptional stage? So one of the things that you've got to look at is, well, what is the actual goal or the objective? That's number one. And salespeople have the objective of playing the transaction game. Their goal or objective, it's just to get the quota. Sales professionals are consistently looking for opportunities to get above quota. And what we basically do is we come in and we say, first and foremost, sales professionals, stop putting the bar so low for yourself. I get that most sales leaders want their salespeople above quota, but that shouldn't be the goal or the objective. The goal or the objective should be to get their sales professionals not to the top of the leaderboard or to quota. It should be to get them to consistently look down at quota and get to the top of their game. You can't get a salesperson to even consider that because they're just going from one transaction to the next. So first and foremost, it's making sure that you have people that actually want to reach that higher bar. And how do you do that? You have to make sure that they have the attributes and the, and the right type of attitude. Okay. So Caesar, here's a question for you. You know, sales people, the common salesperson, one of the biggest fallouts is that their sales cycle can take a long time. You have these forecast meetings weekly, and sometimes you start seeing one of their opportunities, one of their deals that just keeps getting kicked to the next quarter. You know, wasn't that in, wasn't that in Q2? Why is it still here in Q4? And I'm not seeing as a sales owner, uh, as a business owner, uh, I'm not seeing a lot of new activity. I'm just kind of hearing noise. What is it that a sales professional does differently in terms of that sales cycle, how are they able to be more successful that is a differentiator over a traditional salesperson? So one of the things, and this goes back to attributes, and you had made mention of, you know, does a person need to be an extrovert versus an introvert? So let's really think about that because let's look at Myers-Briggs. I'm an ENTJ. I have been for the last 20 years. But if you break down the percentages, which they do in these tests, I'm right on the cusp. It's, it's, it's interesting to me that for 20 years that I've taken this same test, I continue to be on the E side, but it's it's like 52 to 48%. Now, ENTJs, 1.8% of the 16 different personality types versus you look at like an ISTJ, 11.6%. An ENTJ is the second rarest personality type. And the reason I bring that up is there seems to be an equal amount of I, I's as there are E's when it comes to something like that where you're profiling a personality. And that doesn't necessarily mean that only E's can be salespeople, because when it comes to one of the attributes, which is going to drive the sales process and drive urgency in that sales process so that you don't have a business owner or a sales leader continuing to look at the same opportunities month after month, quarter after quarter, is empathy and conscientiousness. And we test for that. Look, we've done this for 12 plus years in front of tens of thousands of sales reps, and we have three distinct tests 
that we give in our workshops to test empathy. And we have almost a 99% failure rate when it comes to empathy. People think they're empathetic, but they're really not. And we prove it to them in the week that we do the workshop. They just are not really thinking. And here's one thing that sales professionals do better than salespeople is that they understand that their solution, because it's tied back to something that's on the customer's shelf, they need to make sure that they drive urgency because they want that solution in their customer's premise or at their customer's business sooner rather than later. And they figure out with some of the other attributes, critical and strategic thinking, effective communication, resourcefulness, and even in the natural curiosity that they have to tinker in and reach out and extend to other relationships outside the initial person that they were contacting, how to build a business case that will drive urgency in that business so that solution gets implemented sooner rather than later. That's what sales professionals do that salespeople don't. They're like a good physician. If I, if I know you have a problem, right. I, I would be a horrible doctor if I didn't want you to get treatment for that problem as soon as possible. But now if I was a snake oil salesman, I'd feel a little guilty or I didn't even know what my product was. I'd feel a little guilty about trying to push something or maybe not. And, and maybe that's one of the things that makes the slick you know, car salesman type folks that gives us the caricature that we, we hate about salespeople, right? They're just trying to push something on you that you don't really need versus sales professionals. They know because they've looked across your enterprise, they've looked across your business, they're empathetic, they're critical thinkers, they're effective communicators, they're resourceful, they've got natural curiosity, they know that this is absolutely going to help you. And that's what they use to drive the sales process. Oh, Caesar, you just said something a minute ago about uh, pushing sales people push their product onto the customer. They're pushing them. Right. Come on. Hey, well, hey, do you have money? If you can't do it today, can you do it next week? And hey, what if I got you a deal? And hey, how about a discount? And hey, what about this? What about that? It's like, okay, stop pushing. I just told you, were you not listening? I'm not ready. Well, look, it's also, so, it's also speed of the group, speed of the leader, right? Right. And, and a lot of leaders play this game. Sales is a numbers game. No, it's not. Go, go back to the doctor example. If you have a doctor who's performing 10 surgeries a day and nine are dying on the table, what are you, you're going to just say, well, do another 10? No, yeah. sales should be about a conversion game. And you have to understand what activity to drive throughout the sales process to know what particular part of the sales process you need to focus on as a sales coach to improve the conversion. Other things yeah. that sales leaders say is sales is a rejection game. No, it's not. Sales should be a, a selection game, right? You're looking at what ideal prospects you have in your marketplace and your total addressable market that you should actually be focusing on so that you get the highest probability for success, the highest lifetime value, not just smile and dial and hope that you get something. It's that type of attitude that sales leaders push on salespeople that gets them to just throw whatever they can up against the wall and be pushy and try to push things that customers don't need. Well, I think you just, I mean, listen, let's talk about conversion because I'm a huge fan of that. And if you look at the technology out there, AI has been out for the last five years trying to find the key ingredients to having salespeople be able to, I just said it, salespeople, making sales professionals work with technology to help them convert deals quicker. And let me explain for a second. There's so many different sales enablement platforms. There's big names out there like Salesforce that have lots of plugins, a number of which I've been, I've used, I've put my hands on. Some of them have built-in AI where they're actually listening to the words. And what they're basically doing is they've got this machine learning that is basically studying, okay, if I have 10, if I have a hundred sellers on the team and, you know, 10 to 15 are the top, let's go in and find out what were they saying? When were they saying, and how did they actually make the sales cycle quicker? What's happening? What's the activity? What's the, how many people did they know? 
when the deal was done, were they only working with one person? Were they working, let's say, for example, in technology? Were they only working with the CTO? Were they also working with the director of security, somebody in network, somebody in infrastructure? Uh, were they talking to people in procurement? If not, why not? Oh, look at that. The, the bottom 80 of the 100, they didn't start talking to procurement until the last cycle, the last day when it came time to try to put wet ink on the paper. Maybe if you had gotten in, in front of that procurement per person sooner, because if you look at the top 10, 15 people on this example, look at that. They're actually talking to these people sooner in the cycle. So conversion is huge, and that's a major differentiator. But the reality is it's part of the science. It's part of uh, you know, building the relationship once again to get other relationships in the deal, uh, in the opportunity, in the business. Uh, you know, just want to kind of see what your take is on that. Yeah, look, Believer? Yeah, look here's the thing. Before we were Playbook for Results, we were sales artists for 12 years, and we did training in the art of selling. And there are a lot of new platforms. There's a lot of new tools, a lot of new technology. We talked a little bit about this on the Maverick versus Iceman podcast. All those new tools, all that new technology, it brings a whole new layer of complexity and processes to the role of a sales coach. Now, here's the thing. The role of a sales coach is threefold. It set the stage for your players to perform, identify and remove obstacles and blind spots, and help them to think well and work to the best of their ability. That's the only thing that a coach should be focused on. Now, how do you do that? Some of that is going to be hands-on instruction, making sure that you give them a playbook and help them to create a game plan that is best in class, not part of best practices. As we said last week, if everyone is doing best practices, then how can you have differentiation in the marketplace? And look, some of those tools are great in that they get the coach focused on looking at objective data, better data, better performance. But that's what, but there's a reason why all of those features like the gamification, competition engines, metric-driven dashboards, scorecards, et cetera, are not having that compounding effect that sales leaders had hoped for. Because at the end of the day, it's still about setting the stage for your player to be able to build relationships based on that mutually beneficial objective. It's the same thing we talked about last week back in the 60s. Increased conversion rate, reduced the spend on missiles, planes, et cetera. The Air Force addressed the issue through technology, while the Navy addressed it through Top Gun better coaching. Now, I haven't seen better coaching plugged into these platforms. That's the problem. You might exactly. be getting better data, but you're not getting better coaching. I, yeah. I was right? going to say, Caesar, you know, what I just got done explaining all of those tools, all the technology, you cannot rely just on it. That is part of the play. So when you have your playbook and you have in the playbook, we're going to be using this tool or these set of tools. Okay, great. Who's the coach? that's going to come in and actually teach you how to use those tools. What are the scripts that are going to be used? What are the plays within the playbook, if you will, right. that are going to be used? And, and that, that's how, the, again, the technology is only part. It's not the whole part. It's only a segment of the playbook. You got to find that nice, that intersection. Steve Jobs talks about it when he quotes Edwin Land the founder of Polaroid. It's that intersection between science and art. And when we talk about better or great coaching, great coaching produces from players who have the right stuff, great players. Always has, always will. The day that we see the NFL, for example, use an app or a piece of technology to improve a quarterback's passer rating is the day that the NFL will have commoditized its solution. They will have forgotten why they exist and what their actual product is to the millions of fans watching in the stands at home. They want to see that interaction between the player and the coach. They're not looking for a quarterback just to have an app that they look at on the sidelines and hope that they just execute a play. It's that dynamicism between the players, the coaches, and their and their teammates. A great coach 
gets to understand their player, their nuances, what makes them tick, what gets them going, and what slows their pace. A great coach also knows how to spot a counterfeit. The player that looks great on paper, but terrible on the playing field. And they only right. invest in the real deal. Now, we don't do enough of that in the real world of selling. We bring anyone that has a pulse or that said yes to our offer and hope that they come in. Or we try to bring in people that come from a huge enterprise that's been around for 35, 40 years. We bring them into a environment where it's highly entrepreneurial or a startup. And we think that they're going to be able to scale the conditions and circumstances from where they came to where they're going. And it's just not possible. They let have address, to have the right let me stuff. A, a pitfall too that yeah. I think is important. It ties back into what you mentioned earlier with empathy. I think a way that business owners, sales owners, can avoid uh, some of the pains of having you know salespeople on board when they thought that they were getting a professional is in the hiring process. What questions are you asking uh, asking during the interviews during the hiring process? Are you actually trying to seek out specific examples of how they've been empathetic to uh, friends, family, coworkers' needs in their past. Like, are you literally asking that question? Give me an example of where you've actually been very empathetic and helped out a, a team member. What did you do for them on the team? Give me an example of how you helped them. Maybe if they sit there and they're like looking up, you know, and they just can't think of something, well, you just kind of knocked it down right there. It should come natural uh, if they are an empathetic person. And then another question is how have them explain how they actually dry, uh, drove urgency to get something done on their last sales team or on one of their last deals that they were managing. That, those are two good questions I think um, you could ask to try to avoid people that don't have the empathy, don't have the sense of driving urgency. Because if you don't have those two things, you just have to avoid hiring those people. Correct? Yeah. And we actually, again, we go back to the attributes, right? If you want to have oranges as part of your product, then you need to get orange trees to produce those oranges. You're not going to hire a bunch of, or, or go buy a bunch of weeds, but that's generally what happens is we bring in a bunch of weeds and we expect them to produce oranges. Not going to happen. So what are the specific criteria or attributes that you're going to look at at the point of purchase? In this case, the point of recruitment to say, I absolutely have an orange tree. There's going to be some pruning. There's going to be some growing, some fertilizing that, you know, it's a, it's a little fledgling, it's a little orange, a little orange tree. tree. <laughs> yeah, it's a little orange tree uh, <laughs> that's going to grow big. And, and so you have to have some care and concern and patience with it. But at least right. you know it's going to produce oranges so long as you take care of it. It's right. a whole different nurturing. thing when, yeah, you're, you're nurturing what it already has contained within it. The juice, as we say, is worth the squeeze. Same type of thing. There are four distinct areas that we look at when it comes to sales professionals. And it's not according to what we say. We looked across history. And when it comes to sales professionals, they have a specific type of attitude. They have specific abilities that allow them to work under all kinds of conditions and circumstances, and they bring a minimum level of skill sets. Again, what you just said, what are the types of things that you're putting into your recruitment process to not just attract, but then also to verify that you have the real deal? One thing that people don't do is they don't study the real deal enough. They get them into their organizations once in a while. And as I pointed out in one of our webinars, when it comes to spotting a counterfeit, according to the Treasury Department and the Secret Service agents assigned to the fraud division, all they do exclusively 
is study the real dollar bill. They study it so intently and so intensely that when they see a counterfeit, they can immediately tell it doesn't look like the real deal. So that's all we've done. We've studied the real deal across history and we've said, here are the attributes. And then we've said, what are the things that we're going to do at the point of the interview to verify? Or in a lot of cases, when we go and consult with companies and we become their de facto standard for growing revenue and building their sales channels, we actually do triage. We go and do an attributes assessment. And generally what we find, EP, is 30% of their people don't even have the stuff. They're weeds. And there's no reason to keep them around. Hate to sound that black and white, but that's just the way it goes. And so now we're going to develop the people that actually have the proficiency and the passion so that we know that they, it's going to be profitable for them and the business. And that means that they actually have a purpose at that company to be in sales at a sales professional level. Caesar, the last thing I want to touch on today is the word traditional. A lot of people fall into the category of being a traditional sales person. I'll even give some of those the benefit of allowing them to call themselves a sales professional. Now they won't say that they're traditional, but I can, I can listen to somebody. You know, I often will just go into somebody's demo, usually a competitor or just any other webinar that I attend, uh, sometimes just to like listen to tactics, listen to, you know, what they're using just to kind of being on this side of the table, it's kind of how you just keep your craft sharpened. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, five, five minutes in, oh, traditional salesperson. Right. Um, you know, think about the organization that doesn't have a training program where, okay, I'm hired today and for the next, I don't know, two weeks, two months, or that typical 30, 60 days, there is a, there's a program in place. You're going to read these books or these, this collateral, you're going to watch these videos. Uh, and I'm talking, let's use the example of like a tech company. And then, oh, then you're going to go out in the field with uh, Jimmy and Joey. And oh, then you're going to start attending demos online and just be a fly on a wall and just soak up, just absorb everything that's happening. So it's learn by, learn by watching. And then sooner or later, I guess after the 30 days, or I guess it's after the 60 days, whatever that marker is, there's that, that, some companies have that uh, magical uh, benchmark. Well, we're going to listen to you. We're going to ask questions of you and we're going to have you here. It is Caesar, the traditional pitch us. Let you need to do a demo in front of us mm -hmm. and we're going to drill you. And then we're going to give you the green flag to go forward or not. We want you to continue to be SpongeBob for the next two, you know, the two additional weeks, whatever it might be that right there that I just described is traditional that's in place. Right. And then what happens is the traditional salesperson does a 15 to 30 minute discovery, shows some slides, tells a story. By the time he or, he or she gets to slide 15, maybe slide 21, think about that. Caesar, the traditional salesperson has probably talked for about 75 to 80% of that first 30 minutes. Now, right. I want you to think about this for a second. That traditional salesperson has never been taught anything different. Question, whose fault is that? Like, how, how do you get that person to become a sales professional? And the reality is, and you talk about it often, is that it's, you know, you're required to be a sales professional at the top of your game uh, to yield a yes as an outcome. And we're not looking for the yes to be at the end of the sales cycle. We're trying to yield yeses as professional sales folks early. 
like really early. Like the first meeting might only be 30 minutes of me getting to know you, Caesar. You get to know me, I get to know you. And at the end of our first 30 minute meeting, ever meeting and discussing any business, I'm hopeful at the end, I'm going to get a yes when I say, hey, Caesar, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Do you think it would be okay if we could get together next Tuesday or Thursday? I've got a morning so opportunity. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me answer your question real quick in terms of like whose fault it is, right? You've got a player that comes on a field and it's terrible coaching. Whose fault is it? Whose fault is it? Say, wait, phrase that one more time. You've got a player who comes onto yeah. a field who has, who's got a passion, absolute passion for the game, right. and they encounter terrible coaching. Right. Whose fault is it? Oh, they're going to blame the coach. They're going to blame everybody but themselves. Who's going to blame the coach? The, 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 well, but maybe that, I mean, somebody's going to blame. Here's, here's, here's what's going to happen. You know, who's going to blame the coach, the amateur, who's never going to become a professional, a salesperson, a salesperson coming into a team is going to look at their coach and say, I performed poorly because of my coach, a sales professional that comes onto a team says, coach, you better step up your game or I'm stepping out of this team. Yeah. You know what? It's interesting because I've seen over the last, I don't know, 25 years, a lot of things have, there, there's a lot of things that are still the same, but when it comes to the blaming game, one thing that I'm noticing with the, the younger generation of sales professionals is that they are uh, really hungry to learn. They want to achieve and get better at their craft. Yes, they might be achieving the title. I can't tell you being around a lot of millennials when they've got inside sales as the title, how, 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 desperate, not desperate, but how eager they are to get the enterprise title. And I know people that have gotten the enterprise title, you know, they're an outside salesperson. They get to now sell to three, five, 10, 20, 50,000 employee companies. But the problem is they don't have enough experience and they still don't have enough of the training to, as you know, we call it here at PB4R, the real ABCs to actually go to the top of their game. So regardless of whether they're, you know, this generation or the past generation, top performers, regardless of the generation they come from, again, let's look at professional sports. They're always going to want to improve. It doesn't matter if you're Roger Federer or if you're John McEnroe, completely two different generations, you want to get to the top of your game. And that's the same thing when it comes to sales professionals. They're always looking for an edge. That's what great players do. That's one of the differences between a salesperson and a sales professional is that a sales professional is constantly looking to improve their craft. Salespeople are just happy with what they just got. And when you look at the types of methodologies that are out there, they're desperate for good training. They want people to come in. People secretly want to be led. That's just a truism, but they don't want to be led by a bunch of buffoons. When we do, we do our workshops, one of the first things that I do is I stand up there and I said, Hey, who here is ready to do some role playing? Because if you're ready to do some role playing, I'm happy to disappoint you that we're not going to do role playing. We're not going to sit here and clap for each other for statements that you know would never, ever work out there. We're going to do something different. It's called running plays. Because when your coach says to run a play, you don't say, well, I kind of don't feel comfortable running a play in front of my professional peers. You run that play. So the coach can then actually say, no, you ran that play wrong according to the best in class playbook. Who here is ready to have a presentation for the next five hours or the next five days? I'm going to dim the lights. I'm going to talk to a bunch of slides. We're going to get a parking lot and we're just going to do the best practice approach to sales training. I'm happy to disappoint you. We're going to have a conversation around what it means to to actually build relationships at a professional level. Who here came to understand how to handle objections? If you guys speak up, I'm going to handle you this week. 
How many of you guys would like that? Well, your customers don't like it either. So we're going to talk about how to acknowledge and address concerns. Who here came to talk about hard closing techniques, the puppy dog close or Ben Franklin close? Because those techniques, if you really look at the actual stats and facts, do not work. That's the difference between the real ABCs, where you're focusing in on four distinct areas that instinctively and intuitively top sales professionals have focused on across history versus the ABCs, always be closing, which is that car salesman mentality. And we, I believe, addressed this last week. Yeah, there's these movies that came out that really highlight the ABCs, always be closing, but all those guys ended up in jail. And when it comes to like automation and technology, all those things are great. It's easy to point our finger at all these excuses, whether it's technology, automation, our bad coaching, our bad products, and we can point our finger and say that's the reason why our conversion rates and our closing ratios are down. But by the same token, it's also easy to become so dependent on those excuses that you lose sight of the essential relationship nature of professional transactions. We as sales leaders and business owners need to set our radar for people who are verifiably better than you are and then we need to get close enough to watch. It's those people that come to the table with those attributes, the people like my youngest daughter, keep an eye out for those folks, right? Where they use their instinct and intuition in a disciplined way to get consistent, scalable, and sustainable results. And those are typically the people that make the things that require a lot of effort look effortless because behind the scenes, they're working a ton load on their craft. And that's really, I think if I break it down between salesperson and sales professional, the significant difference. They're constantly working on their craft, but they make it look effortless. I love it. You brought that home perfectly. And we might just have to ask your daughter to become a consultant for product results because <laughs> she's got what it takes. <laughs> and oh, by the way, ABC, not always be closing, always be Caesar. Every time I tell you that. Yeah, I appreciate it. Okay. 90 seconds on the play clock. Caesar, thank you so much for helping me navigate through this journey today. It was a good one and a good time. Thank you so much. Likewise. We'll talk to you guys next week. Absolutely. We hope you all enjoyed this discussion today and we're able to get a grip on what Caesar and I were dishing out right here on getting a grip on growing your business. Stay tuned as we drop new episodes every Thursday. For more information, check us out on PB4R. That's Playbook for Results. Dot com. This is where you will find an archive of videos, podcasts, and other tools to help you stay on top of your game. Look for us on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. All good things must come to an end, and that includes our show for today. Thank you so much for lending us your ears right here on Getting a Grip on Growing Your Business. My name is EP, reminding you all, don't just do it, crush it. Thanks for listening to the Playbook for Results podcast. For more information on virtual content and coaching designed to grow your business, please visit the Playbook for Results website at pb4r.com. You can follow Playbook for Results on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook just by searching for Playbook for Results or hashtag pb4r. We look forward to you joining us next week for another episode of Getting a Grip on Growing Your Business with your Playbook for Results coaches, your virtual coaching and value creation specialists.